Hello. A little larger than, am I where you all want me to stand? They tell me, they keep changing me around and telling me where to stand. I don't do bossing very well, so no. So you know, I'm 52 and this is my very first tent meeting. And I, I feel like I should have had one way long time ago. <laughs> I think I'm never going back to like walls of a church. Like this is, this is the way to do church, right? Outdoors, in nature, it's kind of casual. Oh, by the way, hi to the people in the gym. I'm so sorry you're not out here. Um, this has been a real privilege to be here. I, I live in Dallas, Texas, but um, I'm originally from upstate New York, so I love being in upstate New York as a Christian because I don't have to be as careful about everything I say as a woman. Because <laughs> down there, you know, you can't ever be sarcastic or blunt, and you have to say things around the barn, and it's exhausting, so it's so good to be here. <laughs> I can't wait to be blunt with you. Well, as Rob said, I'm responsible for kind of cleaning up. I don't like that word, cleaning up, cleaning up the series. I get to talk about the limitless love of God, the limitless love of God. And to do that, I'm actually not going to just hang in one passage because that can't capture the fullness of God's love. I want to kind of comb all the way through the Old Testament, New Testament. Now you're nervous. And you should be because you're going to be here for hours. No. I'm going to tap some Old Testament, some New Testament, sit on some stories, but so we're going to cover the whole paradigm from, because scripture has this huge, if you put it all together about what God is telling us about his love, what he wants us to know is that it is unconditional without limits. Write that down. Unconditional without limits. Like if that's all you hear this morning, that's your win. God's love is unconditional without limits. We read this in Jeremiah 31, 3, Psalm 108. Of course, Romans 8 is the great one. Hebrews 13, 5, just to name a few, and I'm still going to capture some as we move along. God's love for us is unconditional without limits. Why do I keep saying that? Be it is. Yes, that's the Sunday school answer. Yes, that is true, because the Bible says so, but we actually don't believe it, at least in how we live it. I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, like unconditional, without limits, like I can't relate to that, because I, I have limits in how I love people, right? Like I, I have some limits. I suspect you do too. Do you remember, now I'm 52, so I'm, I'm dating myself. Some of you won't get this. But when I was in elementary school, we had to cover our textbooks with brown paper bags. Any, uh-huh, mm, you remember? What did we do with those brown paper bags? Masterpieces designed on them, right? Oh, yeah, baby. Well, for me, you know, like I would like, there was this cute little boy named Johnny. And I would put his name on my little brown paper bag, Johnny and then my name, Jackie, and then I'd put the heart, right? And then you have to have the arrow that shoots through the heart with the little things on the end. Did anybody make your arrow that way? Look, how many? Two, three, five, ten. Okay, yeah. So, you know, it'd be like Johnny and Jackie, Jackie and Johnny, and then I'd have to put my name with his last name, right? And then a couple weeks later, ripped it up, threw it away, new brown paper bag. I can't even remember that boy's name, but Michael. Oh, Jackie and Michael. 
Michael and Jackie, you know? I, everlasting, like, I don't love like that. You know, I have, I have limited attention span. I don't get it. I'm not the only one. Actually, I think our society functions that way. Forever? Everlasting? Oh, no, no, no. What about our careers? We don't like them? Nothing to say this about, I have millennials. They jump, right, from, from career to career. We switch. If our kids are on a sports team and we don't like the way the coach is treating them, we change teams, right? We don't like um, our husbands or wives. We get rid of them. Um, the church puts up a tent in the middle of the summer, and we decide, hey, I think I'll get a new church, right? We do church hopping. Those are funny things, some of them. But we see in the news, you know, you don't want a child, you put them in a trash can, right? Everlasting? Forever? We don't do forever. And we don't do unconditional either, right? Like, I am, a, I am a conditional lover. I wish I could say I wasn't, because I know that God isn't, and I'm supposed to be like him, but if I'm really honest, I'm a conditional lover. Like, I really tend to love people really well when they love me well, right? It's easy for me to love well when I'm being loved well. Like, for example, my husband is here, and when I, I just, I love him most when he's loving me well. He knows this. This is not a surprise to him. We've been married 30 years. It is not a surprise. I love my kids, but if I'm honest, I have tended to love them better when they were well-behaved. Do you know what I mean? Can I get an amen in the room from some parents? Thank you. I love my dog. I'm an animal lover. Like, give me animals. I could have a farm. Poor Steve. I wanted a pig. I was like, can we please get a pig? He goes, we live in a townhouse. We can't have a pig. I'm like, yes, you can. They have tiny pigs. Like, you know, I'd put a sheep in there. I love animals. So I love, 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 love my dog until he pees on the carpet. And then all of a sudden, he's in the cage. He's out. I don't love him at all anymore, right? Like, I am a conditional lover, and the truth is, because this is how I love, I tend to project that upon how God loves. And I intellectually know what Scripture says, but when it comes to reality, I am projecting that truth back onto my God. And I wonder if his love has something to do with whether I'm good enough or how bad I am or have I crossed the line too much. That's how I love, right? That's how I've been loved. And you have too. Yes. And you have too. My dad seemed to love me uh, better when I worked harder on the farm. Some of you were well loved by your parents when you like, were really competitive on a team and succeeded and got the trophy. Others of you were well loved because you hung out with the right crowd. You were well behaved. But man, the moment you lost the match or you hung out with the wrong cloud, crowd, you noticed that there was a little bit of love withheld, correct? See, I love like this, I've been loved like that, and so have you. We've learned it by experience. People love us when we're lovable. And that creates a problem for us, right? Because <laughs> we know there's things about us that aren't all that lovable. Oh, I know nobody else knows next to you. We're very, very, very good at hiding it, particularly those of us in the church, right? I know that no one else knows, but you and I both know there is stuff about us that is really unlovable. 
right? And if people knew, right? If people knew those things, I mean, they're ugly things in us, like we have really critical spirit, or like we have a sharp tongue, or we have jealousy that rages, or there's things we've done, like had abortions after you came to faith. And I know this because I've worked with women for 25 years. We've had sex with people who are not our spouse. We drink too much. We've hit our kids too hard. Nobody else knows that. You know. We say things about people we know we shouldn't say. I mean, the truth is, each and every one of us in this room, we know there are unlovable things about us, and we fear that if people really knew that, they wouldn't love us, and, and we're right. But here's where the problem comes in. We know God knows these things about us. And we think that what he knows must disqualify us from receiving his love. That's actually how we live. Right? We think that what he knows must disqualify us from his love. But what if it doesn't? What if it doesn't? What if all that doesn't disqualify you from God's love? What if Scripture tells us something very different than that? And that takes me to what the worship team talked about this morning, which is the parable of the, son, the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You can turn there if you want or do that little electronical scrolly thing that some of you do. And if I get near you, it will go bad and break. So... I'm going to actually summarize the story. It's a very common story, but you can turn there, Luke chapter 15, if you want, 12 through 32. It's the story of the prodigal son. And as you know, the son comes to the father, and he asks the father for his inheritance. And basically, what the son is doing in this culture is saying to the father, hey, you're really rich. I really want your money. Um, you're not dead, so I can't get it. So I'd really like to, like, could you just pretend you're dead and let me have the money? It's a huge insult to a father. I wish you were dead so I could have your money, is basically what he's saying. And what's shocking to the story is the father gives him the money. And the boy goes away, and we know that he squanders all of these resources away. And then in verse 14 and 16, we read that he goes to this farmer, and he begs the farmer to allow him to work amongst the animals, within the animal pen, so that at least he could eat. Basically, he's working with the pigs. Now, this is a Jewish story with a Jewish child. Jewish people don't eat. Thank you. Somebody's awake, pork. Yeah, pigs are... Right, and so the, the author's trying to tell us something there. This is about as low as this kid can go, right? And then in verse 17, he finally comes to his senses. And I figure the kid's got to be about now, about 26, 27, 28, because I have 20-year-olds. And, and it says he came to his senses. Kids in their 20s, early 20s, they got no senses. I thought they would. But they don't. So I'm thinking this dude must be about 28 now. He's starting to come to his senses, you know. Some of us that have these 20-year-olds get this. And this is what the text says. He said, at home, the hired servants have food enough to spare, and I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, 
Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired hand. Significant. Hired hand. That's what he requests. Now, what you need to know is there on this property with this father, there would be hired hands and slaves. Do you know what a hired hand is? Well, in Texas, it would be like me driving down to a corner parking lot where a bunch of illegal immigrant Mexicans are standing waiting to be hired for the day. You take them in your car, you bring them home, you ask them to do work, you take them back to that parking lot and you drop them off and they are at your mercy to hopefully give them a dollar for the day. That's a hired hand. That's what it's referencing in scripture here. Notice he asks to be a hired hand. That's lower than a slave because a slave actually lives on the property, has a bed, has a roof over his head, has at least a meal a day. The son says, let me be a hired hand. So what does this tell you about where he's at? Shame, disgusted. You can talk to me. Shame, bottom of the barrel, right? Have you ever been there like disgrossed out at himself? What does it say about what he thinks about his father's love? It's not worthy, it's conditional, it's limited, right? I mean, maybe he'll let me be on the outside of the family, the fringe out here, but surely he's not going to bring me into the family. I have three children. Hunter is 28, Hampton is 26, Madison is 25, And I got to tell you, Hampton, my middle son, when he was about four years old, he became Dennis the Menace on caffeine, and I'm saying that nicely, and he never stopped. And he was a very troubled child, and I've talked about Hampton frequently in my books and from the stage, and one time I had this Baptist leader come to me, female, and say, you should never talk so negative about your child publicly, and I went home and I said to Hampton, I got scolded today for talking about you, and he goes, well, did you tell her this? And did you also tell her I also did that? And, did, and mom, am I going to get a profit off you using that as an illustration? <laughs> Seriously. Hampton was hard to raise. And he did things in our home that blew up our home, that were highly, highly offensive to me and to my husband, and actually to our whole family. Several times he was removed from the home, and he'd come back, and I would cook, and I would do his laundry, and I would sit in the living room and have conversations with him, but I'm here to tell you, he was on the outside because I was withholding vulnerability, intimacy, total knownness with my son. Ever been there? Right? We have these people in our lives that we love, and they just keep banging and doing these stupid things that are hurtful and harmful, right? And they come home, and okay, you let them home, but you keep them on the fringe. You know what I'm saying? This is what this young man is expecting. This is what he thinks of himself, and this is what he thinks of his father. And then we hit verse 20. 
And in verse 20, we're forced to comprehend something. Now, I'm going to use this word, and I'm going to define it. And I want you, if you're writing down, to write down what this means. Because God wants us to comprehend verse 20. To comprehend something means to lay hold as to make your own. Lay hold so as to make your own. To seize something. To take possession. To mentally grasp I'm hammering that because this is what God wants us to get when he gets to verse 20, and here's what he says. So the boy got up and went to his father, and while he was a long way off, the father saw him and filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, take note of that, we're going to come to that, he ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Now here's what I want you to picture. The boy is coming down the road. The father's in the house. What's the boy look like? Because he's been partying like crazy for years. So what's his eyes look like? Ever been around somebody that's done meth? Ever seen anybody who's done pictures? Come on, nobody? You've never? Okay, thank you. Oh, I can't say I know anybody who's done meth. I've seen pictures. Oh, yeah, it's on the news. Yeah. Okay. How's the eyes look? hollow, right? Dark, tired, weary. How's he smell? Icky. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I don't need to go. Okay. How's his hair look? Is it that beautiful, like he got up in the morning, put a little, you know, just gel on and no, it looks a lot like mine, except bigger and more and disheveled, right? Yes, yes. Why am I telling you this? Because this is the boy walking toward the father, and the father can see that he's been sinning. He's all over him, the father knows. The father knows what the son has been doing. And it says in the scriptures that we are to comprehend at this very moment, the father is filled with love and compassion, and he runs. Now, this is the only time in scripture that God is ever imaged as running. It's the only time in Scripture. Now, in antiquity, men wore dresses. They actually called them tunics. Think Middle East. Down to the bottoms of the feet. You know, anybody ever seen that? On TV, right? You've never seen it in person, I know. But on TV, you've seen these men wearing these things, right? Okay, you got the picture. That's what the story, in the story, that's what he'd be wearing. What does he have to do to run? Is there only one person paying attention in this room? (laughs) What does he have to do? He has to pull up his dress, right? And now his legs are being shown in that culture, in ancient antiquity. That is a humiliation, shame-dishonoring act. For a man to show his legs would be dishonoring humiliating, shameful. And this is profound because what I want you to know is that the father was willing to humiliate himself for his child. Let me say that again. Your father is willing to humiliate himself for you. That's what the text is telling us. And the father comes to the son and he says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get him a finger for his ring and sandals for his feet. 
sandals. It's important that we have the word sandals because in that culture, slaves wore sandals. Remember, we had the hired hand. He was thinking hired hand. Boy, the slave is the next step up. Slaves don't wear shoes. Free people wear shoes. Free men and women wear shoes. And the father says, get some shoes. What's he doing? He's saying, I will not let you stay out here. I know you want to stay out here. I know that's what you think you're worth. He's grabbing him into the inner circle of the family, fully accepted. God is willing to humiliate himself so that his children can be free. A one-time act at resurrection, absolutely, and he resurrects every single day afterwards. Now, here's what I want to say. I have to give a little caveat, because I am not saying that God is like, oh, go ahead and sin. It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. I'm not saying that. There are earthly consequences to our sinful choices. I work with women, and it's like I have to say to women, look, if you have sex outside of marriage and you get pregnant, God can totally forgive you. He can totally redeem that situation. He can actually bring new life, amazing work out of that. But you're still pregnant, chicky chicky. Like, that's still a reality. So, so, so there's a consequence, right, to our sinful behavior. Hebrews 12, 6 says the Lord disciplines those he loves. But what I want you to know is he doesn't withhold his love solely because we have sin in us. Brennan Manning says, God does not condone or sanction evil, but he doesn't withhold his love just because there is evil in us. When would we be willing to say, oh, there is evil in us, and God does not withhold his love because it's there? The father raced to meet the son. He was willing to bestow love and compassion. And I was praying this morning before the service started, and I recognize in a room full of people like this, there are so many of us living with the pigs, metaphorically. Right? We're choosing to stay over here. We don't dare to even ask if we can be a hired hand. Okay, so maybe we'll get up the courage. You've done this, right? We'll get up the courage and say, okay, Jesus, I'm coming to you, but surely I, I'll stay right here. I, I'm good right here. I know that that's what I deserve. In this room, you're here. And I, I would ask you if that's you, that you just stop listening to everything I say for the rest of the time, and you just, you just bend your head and you start talking to the Spirit and you, you ask him to take you to the Father. Walk down that road and let the Father bestow his love upon you and bring you home. It's time to come home. There are no limits. Ephesians 3.18 challenges us to consider not just intellectually. This is the problem with those of us who know the Bible really well. We're good knowers of the word. But there's different ways in which you know things. I'm sorry, over there in the room, I'm about to go off script, and they're going, no, stay on script. There's different ways we know things. Intellectually, we know. Like, let me give you an example. If I were a scientist, 
I'm no, I'm going off. If I were a scientist and I took a little cut of cells off my lips and I put them on a microscope and I put them underneath, you know, a slide and I put them underneath the microscope, I could tell you a whole lot about lips, couldn't I? I could tell you what the DNA is and blah, 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 blah probably even the skin color tone, blah, blah, blah. but to be kissed on the lips, that's a whole other way of knowing. And here's what I want you to know. God the Father wants you to intellectually know who he is and to know his love, but he wants you to be kissed on the lips with it also, to experience it. Ephesians 3.8 says that we would experience how wide and how long and how high and how deep the Father's love is. This is not just an intellectual pursuit. Now, I got to move on just a little bit here. Are you hanging with me? We're good to go. We got one more thing we need to talk about. That's the flip side of the coin here. Are you with me? Or should we just go eat? (laughs) All right. All right. We're going to stay here. Okay. So because some of you here, you you know, like we're living in the bad world. We do the bad things. We know we're acting bad. We're the prodigal son. And then we have these other people in the room. And this would, like, I, I fit that category. And then I have a sister that fits the other category, which is you just do good. You're one of those good people. You're going, Jackie, I haven't done any of those big bombs. I'm good. I'm good. I work really hard at being good. I mean, I serve on everything that there is at church and at the schools, and then I coach, and then I, and then I get a 4-0, and, I, and you're, you're just a striver for good, right? Except behind all that goodness, there's this little tiny naggy thing that says, what if I'm not doing enough good? Like, what if you get depression, which happened to me in my 30s, and I had to be on a couch for a period of time, and I had to ask myself, well, I can't do anything good right now. What, what if you're not able to do good for just a moment? You start panicking, right? Like, what if I can't do good enough? Then does God withhold his love? See, this is the other side of that coin, isn't it? And some of you live in that town. When, I was in, uh, when my kids were in high school, I had a woman that I didn't know very well. They asked me to go to a museum. We were driving down the road. And, you know, she asked me to tell her about her kids because... People love to know about pastor's children, as if they are some kind of freaky alien or something. I'm like, well, they're like your children, but worse. Because my kids have two pastors. So I said, you know, I really like my kids. I really like who they are, and I really like who they're becoming. And she immediately assumed that that meant my kids were well-behaved. Now, see, she didn't know Hampton. She did not know my family. But she immediately assumed the reason I said that about my children is because they were well-behaved. And then she went on to do this thing that I will ask all of you women in this room to never do again. Because we women do this. You're going to catch it when I do it here in just a second. But she went on to pontificate about all the good things that her children do. Like she went on to tell me that her kids were involved in leadership and wah, 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 wah. And then she went on to say they also started a ministry for the poor, wah, wah, wah. That's what I'm hearing. And then, you know, oh, her daughter's the cheerleader. Oh, no, she's the squad leader of the cheerleader, wah, wah, wah. And she's got a 4-0, wah, wah, wah. And she has a Bible study in her hometown, wah, wah, wah. You know, some of us women do that. You need to stop because some of us other mothers, we have Hamptons. But we do this, right? We do this. Love based on performance. 
You're amazing because of how good you are. We stroke people. We praise people for doing great things. And in us, somewhere down deep, we actually think that's the way God loves us too. See, that's how we love our kids. It must be how God loves us too. The only problem with that is it's not biblical. I love using that word. I don't use it very often because it's overused. That kind of thinking about being really good is not biblical. It's not in the Bible. It's not what God says about how he loves. I want you to listen to just a few verses about what God says about why he loves us. Just see if it's about whether he was a C, if it's because you're a CFO or you've made millions or, oh, you're just a great cook for everybody in the neighborhood or you're a 4-0 in your doctoral program. Just, just see if that's in the passages, okay? Zephaniah 3.17. For the Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will quiet you with his love. I'm just curious. When's the last time you've been quieted by God's love? You know what I mean? Like anchored, good no matter what. That's what the verse says. There's no like, and if you're a CEO and you're a great singer. And Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not choose you and lavish his love on you because you were larger or greater than any other nation. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. For you were the smallest of all nations. It was simply because the Lord loves you. What if God's love for us is simply based um, on, on the fact that we are his? Not on how bad we are, or how good we are, but just solely because we're his. What if he can love us like that in the good and the bad because his love is actually never based on who we are but rather based on who he is? What if his love for us is based on his character and not ours? On what, who he is and what he has done and not who we are and what we have done? Now I say this because that's biblical. It's in Exodus 34, 6. I'm going to tell you the story. Moses is in the Sinai Desert with the Israelites. So you remember, they're in slavery in Egypt over here, right? Yep, okay. And they're on their way to Israel, right? The land of Canaan, yep. In between is this desert. It looks a little bit like this on a map. Anybody ever see it on a map? Okay, great. If you have it, it's time for you to figure out where places are in the universe, Sinai Desert, here they are. Steve and I have been in that desert. There's nothing but a whole lot of mountains and rocks. And so here he is. He's, he's come down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's got the tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. And he sees the people sinning, and he drops the tablets in anger and crashes it. And now he's got to go back up that mountain. We've hiked to that mountain. That was dumb on his part. That is, I'm a runner and a hiker, and let me tell you something, that's a hike up the hill, and he was old. And now he's got to go back up that mountain and get another set. Now, here's the thing. Don't you think that, like, he might be a little embarrassed when he gets up there with God? I mean, what's he going to say to him? Okay, so I got a little mad. I threw down the stones. They broke. 
Yes, I know they were the only written words that you have ever given people in the universe. I got mad. I just, I mean, I don't know what to do, you know? I understand that this is the words that were going to help people know who you are and how to relate to each other, but I got mad. I mean, do you think he's a little nervous? I think so. I think he's feeling a bit of remorse about his behavior, and now he's got to meet with God. But I want you to listen to what God says to him in response, which is fascinating. Because God could have said, oh, don't worry about it. I mean, I threw the stars into the sky. I can whip up those stones like nothing. He could have done that, or he could have scolded him, but he doesn't. You know what he does? He tells Moses who he is. And this is what he says. Oh, Moses. I am the Lord, the merciful, the one who doesn't give you what you deserve, Moses. I am the Lord, the merciful and gracious God, the one who gives you what you don't deserve, Moses. Oh, Moses. I am the Lord, the merciful and gracious God, and I am slow to anger, the one that has great patience with you. Oh, Moses. I am the Lord, the merciful and gracious God, and I am slow to anger and rich in unfailing love, the one whose love will never fail you. Oh, Moses, I am the Lord, the merciful and gracious God. I am slow to anger and rich in unfailing love and faithfulness, the one who will never leave you, Moses. He's saying to Moses, this right here is the basis of our relationship. It's never based on the faulty foundation of who you are, Moses. It was built on my holy foundation. It's based on me. God proclaims that our relationship with him is secure because of who he is, not because of who we are. And he wants to make sure, hear this, he wants to make sure that you and I get it. Because he knows we're a little clueless. He says it over and over and over again in Scripture. Let me just give you a few. I'll rattle through them really fast. I'm almost done. Hang in there. I know it's hot, but it's hotter in Texas. It's 109 today. You're, you're fine. <laughs> Psalm 108.4, for your unfailing love is higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Number 14.18, the Lord is slow to anger and rich in unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. Nehemiah 9.17, for you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and full of unfailing love and mercy. You did not abandon your children, even though they made an idol. And one of my very favorites, write it down, 2 Timothy 2.13. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Right? Let me say that again. That's a good one. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And then, of course, the most famous one, Romans 8, 38. And Paul says, and I am convinced. And I'm back to that word comprehend, because that's what that means. Paul's saying, I'm convinced. And I'm here to ask you, are you convinced? Are you convinced 
that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Death can't, life can't, angels can't, demons can't. Our fear for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above in the sky or in the deepest of oceans, nothing in all of creation, hear that again, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Amen. God's asking us in Luke 20, 15, 20, to comprehend. Paul's asking us in 8, 38, to be convinced. That means to lay hold, to seize, to take possession of, to mentally grasp, to allow God to not only intellectually penetrate your mind, but to kiss you on your lips. May we be, as Paul calls us in Ephesians 3, 18, people who understand how wide and how long, and how high, and how deep God's really, love really is. Amen. Let me pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we need to be kissed by you, Lord. We intellectually heard, and now we need to experience. Allow us, Lord, this morning to journey toward you, whether it be because we have been making sinful choices and have been away from you, or whether it's because we've exhausted ourselves trying to be good enough for you. Here we come, Jesus, walking down the street, disheveled and hollow for a variety of reasons, and we see you. We see you lifting the tunic and running, grabbing our face, looking us in the eye, full of love and compassion, and saying to us this morning, welcome home. Welcome home, my daughter and my son. Lord, let that be our reality, not only today, but as we go forth into this life that you have given us to live and move. I ask these things for Jesus Christ's reputation's sake and so that we, as his people, can make him look as good as he already is. And all of God's people said, amen.